0: Block
1: Talk Radio. Hello and welcome again to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Donald Mazzella, and I am editorial director of Small Business Digest. We come to you through three media channels: here at Block Talk Radio, through our online newsletters and via our magazine. They are now all available to you at www.SmallBusinessDigest.net That's SmallBusinessDigest.net Each month we touch more than 1 million small business leaders through our various channels. Each hour here at Small Business Digest Radio, we hope to bring you information, strategies, and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are carefully chosen for their experience or expertise. They do not pay to be on this program, but rather our editors and readers identify them. Uh, they also identify the topics of possible interest for our audience. If you have any suggestions or particular topics you want us to cover, please email us at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. T- today's program, like all our efforts, have a wide diversity of guests talk- talk us about, talking to you about the topics you say you want to hear. Uh, we will start off today with better customer service, talk about marketing, and and uh, also um, how to introduce a product and be successful. Uh, I'm really pleased today to, uh, to welcome our first uh, guest, Shep Hyken. He's an award winning customer service ex- expert, and he's here to give us ideas and ways of creating outstanding programs. Shep, welcome to the program.
0: Hey, thank you so much for having me on the program. Excited to be here.
1: Well, we're excited to have you. I've I, uh, seen in your work in the past. Uh, I know you also, I think, have a book out. But first, we always ask our, our guests to tell a little bit about themselves uh, at the sure. start. So our audience gets a little bit of a, p- a picture of them.
0: Well, uh, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. I still live there. I am a, hopefully a good husband and a great father. <laughs> That's been the goal. Actually, one of my life mantras is to have fun and make the kids smile. Uh, As for business, uh, at age 12, I started my first business. It was a magic show birthday party business, which actually was fairly successful. Uh, Within a year or two, I was doing eight to ten shows every week. Uh, Age 14, worked in my first nightclub. Age 16, worked at the Playboy Clubs, which is an unbelievable job for a 16-year-old. Went on to college, graduated college. Uh, I had also had a number of other jobs. that My mom used to make me uh, have summer jobs, real jobs, if you will, because you can get pretty distorted with the Great opportunity of, you know, doing these shows and getting paid pretty well. Anyway, uh became a speaker. I saw a couple of motivational speakers, Dick Ziegler and Tom Hopkins. And I said, I can do that, have the entertainment background, a little business background. And that's kind of how it all started out. I landed on customer service because as I was reading everything that I could possibly devour in the world of business, uh, I kept reading about IBM. I, I read a book by Jan Carlson, who was the president of Scandinavian Airlines, called Moments of Truth. And it, customer service resonated with me because that's what made me successful as a teenager doing my magic shows, was taking care of those parents so that those kids would always want to have me at their birthday parties. So, um, that's kind of how it all started. I and I had some retail experience, and uh, just picked up the phone, started smiling and dialing, and picked up a few great clients. And it's been, uh, you know, going good ever since. It's been 30 years.
1: Well, uh, you started young. Um, in today's world, uh, a lot of people are starting out after careers in uh, large corporations. I think uh, the statistics are that uh, one of the, out of every three new t- uh, new companies started uh, in the past two years have been from people who are refugees from corporations. Have you ever worked in a large corporation?
0: Well, you know, it, it's funny that you would say that, but and, and I have to agree with you, and part of the reason that there's these all these startups and the entrepreneurs are really, I think, driving the economy, and small business really drives the economy is that, we're, we're forced to go into our own business. So, I get, you know, as I mentioned, I had summer jobs. One of my summer jobs was working at a gas station. Now, we weren't a large company, but we had about 100 and some odd gas stations, and uh, we did fairly well. When I went to college, I started working for this company, even though I was still doing my shows. I started working for them full time. I worked in the field on the weekends, actually, pumping gas and get an idea of what it's like to to work at a retail store. Uh, We had convenience store items as well, not just gasoline. And then on the weekdays, I worked in their operations department. And and when I graduated college, they made me a region manager. And within a very short time, I was kind of involved with uh, assisting the director of operations and uh, eventually promoted. And three weeks later, they sold the company. And all of a sudden, this company that I'd given my heart and soul to and made a decision to work for the rest of my life for Uh, Let me go. And uh, I was given 6 months severance pay of $500 a month, (laughs) which wasn't a lot. And I was given the company car, which I was driving around as a region manager, uh, and that had 180-some-odd thousand miles on it. (laughs) You know, that wasn't worth a lot. But that was my package. And I left and I said, you know what, I'm going to find something. And and, uh, so, in a sense, I'm one of those refugees.
1: Well, you seem to be uh, successful at it. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, let's explore a little bit about gasoline. Do you, um, I, I'm old enough to be of the generation where uh, when you went in for your, your gas, they wiped your windshield and yes, they, they, did they checked your oil and did other things. And now uh, outside of New Jersey, every state in the union has self-service rather than service. Uh, um uh, I think that the gas companies lost something in the, in that. What do you think?
0: Well, you know, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think that there's something to be said for full service and giving great service. So let's go back to around 1981 when it's uh, an extremely cold day. It might have been 82, extremely cold in St. Louis. And I'm going to say the chill factor was well below zero. And I worked at a self-serve gasoline station. The only thing was they were old-style pumps where I had to actually go out and manually reset the pump after the person was finished with their pumping of the gas, and I would actually make change for them on the lot. I had a little changer, and I carried around a lot of bills, and as soon as we made enough money, we dropped the money in the safe, and as long as we had enough money to make change. There was an elderly woman that pulled up, and I pumped her gas for her because there's no way that I would want this woman, if she was my grandma, to get out of the car on this very frigid day and pump this gas. And I walked inside, and the manager of the station said, what did you just do? I said, what do you mean? He says, you just pumped that lady's gas. I said, yeah, I did. He goes, well, now she's going to expect it the next time. And I'm going, that wouldn't be such a bad thing if she came back next time, would it? So that was, uh, you know, I didn't even know it was called customer service back then. I think it's just basically doing the right thing.
1: uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Well, then let's segue into um, customer service now seems, um, uh, we seem to be more and more um, distant from personal service. But what do you think are the keys to customer service? Let's start with the person-to-person, and then let's go uh, a little further afield uh, online. But let's st- stick with personal, person-to-person. What are the keys to customer service, do you think?
0: Yeah, I think the first thing is if you're if you're looking for the right people to hire, then you're hiring the right attitude. But at the end of the day, the person-to-person customer service, the interaction, is based on uh, the attitude and the aptitude for whatever the um, you know employee has to take care of that customer. So we want to hire good people, and I think it was uh, it was either Peter or Blake Nordstrom was asked, how do you train the people to be so good at the Nordstrom department stores? And the response was, we don't train them, their parents train them. We just take what they already know and make it work for us. And I think that's a great way of looking at it because people inherently know what good is. Now, you can teach people to do this, but if you really want to do it at a much easier level, hire the people that already understand what doing the right thing is all about. So from a people-to-people standpoint, that's the start. Now. Attitude and aptitude, because um, I just wrote this book, Amaze Every Customer Every Time. It's actually the 10th book that I've written. And, and, uh, wait a minute, stop
1: f- right there. Say it again, okay. because that's what really caught my eye. Say, say the title again, because I think it's important. Amaze,
0: yeah, Amaze Every Customer Every Time. And it actually has uh, the subtitle, is 52 Tools to Create the Most Amazing Customer Service on the Planet. And a number of those tools are focused on the one-to-one uh, interactions that you have with your customers. But here's the cool thing. I use the company, Ace Hardware, as a role model throughout the book, the, the main case study. And the reason I did is lots of great companies are out there that have been recognized. Well, Ace Hardware has been recognized. They just don't get the limelight like the others. They're a rock star. And uh, what, what they do is amazing. They are the most helpful stores in the hardware industry, if not in the entire world. So the point is uh, when my friend Tom Knox, who's the VP VP of retail development for Ace, gets up and talks to the troops, he says, we can all be nice. Everybody's nice. People at Home Depot, Lowe's, all those big box stores that we compete with, they're really nice. Ask them where a part is, they can take you over there. But we are more than just nice. We're helpful. And helpful is a big difference. We train our people. To understand the product, we train the people to know how to use it, how to save our customers money, the right questions to ask to make sure they get everything they need for the first, you know, on the first time they go into the store. So that is the goal: uh, is to be the most helpful store, not just the best service, but service plus helpful is a winning combination. Uh,
1: that's very true. But uh, let, me, let me ask you a question. Um, uh, it seems. Uh, uh, well let me let me go further um, uh on this topic you say uh, the parents train them uh, but we seem to have in in this country some dichotomy um, in, in this uh, uh, in this area. It seems you can go to some stores and uh the people are simply not helpful they and they appear angry how do you uh If you have a a force that's um, not happy, how do you change it?
0: Well, well, I, I think there's a couple of things that are happening there or potentially happening. Number one, they've hired the wrong person. And if you've got somebody that's not happy and has a bad attitude and that's their personality they 're probably not suited for the front line. They may be great at some other function, maybe they 're great in accounting and maybe they should be maybe in administration doing you know support internally or maybe they should be in a warehouse, but they shouldn 't be on the front line if they don 't have the attitude and the personality to do so. The other thing that could be happening is you can take the greatest people in the world and put them into a bad culture and If the leadership isn 't supporting uh, the, the the people the way they should then you 're going to find a problem with all the people, regardless of how nice uh, they are. They're going to just, you know, their best efforts are going to be, you know, they're going to be given negative reaction. And so it's really hard. Uh, I find it really difficult when we go into a company to help and we do some customer service training for companies and the leadership doesn't show up to the training they think everybody should do. And that sends a bad message to the people. What's worse is I've seen leaders take people in the back verbally abuse them, so to speak, and send them out and tell them now be nice to the customer. It's just, it's incongruent. So uh, there's a T-shirt out there that I saw once that said, the beatings won't stop until your morale gets better. And so that's kind of the way I, I see that culture. Well,
1: uh, uh, I see that a lot. Uh, l- l- let me ask you a loaded question, which is, are there regional di- uh, differences – back from we're in the new york city area and i just came Mm -hmm. back from minneapolis where my wife is from uh over the weekend and there just seems to be a a cultural difference between the way things people do things in minneapolis and the way they do things in new york on on an overall basis do you see that regional differences
0: oh sure there's there's regional differences in the personalities and I think, you know, you get into, uh, it doesn't mean you can't deliver great customer service in New York City. I mean, I love New York. As a matter of fact, that's where I'm heading today. Uh, and uh, I, I just think that uh, it's it's not so much that people are curmudgeonous or it's just a faster pace. Perhaps it's more direct. But people who understand how to deal with people, it doesn't matter. They're that way. Uh, I will say this, that that people in that upper eastern area of the U.S., uh they're perhaps a little bit tougher, so to speak, but they also, I just never forget when I was uh, doing some sales work uh, and talking to some people, and, and once you broke in, they're your best friend, your best ally, your best evangelist. They love you. So I just think that sometimes different personalities, different cultures, it's a little tougher to break through, but they all understand what it's about. People do business with people. So manage the people experience.
1: Oh, let me ask you another question empowerment um mm-hmm. uh, you know you, you run into a situation and the and the uh, person says well i can't do anything about it then you say well let me have the manager uh most people are not are too polite to ask for the manager i'm not i'm a new yorker but i know um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, but, uh, go no, no, at, but go ahead.
0: No, no. Go So, no, no. The question, the question. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you. I agree. But the question of that is, is you know, you're talking about empowerment. Um, I can't. I don't. I'm not sure there was a question there, but I'll comment on it. I can't stand when that happens. You know, just today, driving into the parking lot here at the airport, the lady said, uh, "The lot is full," and I said, "No, it's not." I see a bunch of spots right over there, and she looked at me. She says, "The lot is full." I said, "Ma'am." It's not full. If you're telling me you're not going to allow me to park here for a different reason, I'm okay with that. And the security guy at the airport said, if you can find a spot, go ahead. And I went in, and she was furious with me. You know, what's that about? You know, it's like they they dig. And I even said, I would like to speak to your supervisor. I'd like your name, because this is just no way to treat a customer. But here's the bottom line. There's two tools in the book of the 52 that I think really address this rather well. Uh, there's a number of others, but the first is to act like you're the owner. And that's that's the number one first tool in the entire book. And it's a leadership principle that anybody in any organization, regardless of their responsibility, can be a leader when it comes to customer service. When you act like the owner, it means you do the right thing as if you were the owner. So this kid came up to me. He's 18 years old. worked at a pizza parlor. And he said, I had the best compliment. This is how I came up with this concept. And I said, what was that? He says, the other day, one of my customers asked me if I was the owner or I was the owner's son. And I go, well, how did that make you feel? It made me feel great. It made me feel like I was doing the right thing. I thought, oh, that's genius. I said, so you're going to keep acting that way? He says, absolutely. I want people to think that I'm the owner. <laughs> I go, cool. So what a great, great way if you can create a culture, if you're a leader and create a culture where you, ask everybody to treat it like it's your own. And we'll teach you, if you make a mistake, how to make it right. And if you're doing well, we'll reinforce what you're doing right because we want you to feel empowered to do that. The next uh, tool that I think is really cool is one that's it's called two, uh, one to say yes and two to say no. And it's the opposite of what a lot of companies do. A lot of times uh, some you know a, a person wants to make an exception for the customer, so they'll say, I need to go check with my supervisor to to make sure this is okay. And instead, what they are asked to do now is instead of having to go check for a yes, they have to go check to be able to say no to a customer. It completely flips it around. As a matter of fact, there was uh, one of the owners of the retail uh, hardware store, one of the Ace hardware stores said, uh, by doing this one principle, I eliminated 80% of the complaints and problems that my people bring me. That's pretty cool.
1: That is, and that's one I, I've always felt. Uh, I'm just going to share um, uh, one story with you. Many years ago, uh, I was working as a copy boy, and uh, I did something. Um, uh, I did an error of commission, and the editor at the time it was it was a real bad error, and he said the the kid did an error of commission. And not omission, and I would much rather have that. And I've lived <laughs> by that principle for many years. And I re- I remember that, and I try to instill that. Uh, but but what I see so much today um, is uh, well, I can't. We can't do that. We can't do that. When you go to the supervisor, he says, "Well, of course we can do that." And it it, it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth Uh as you know, a the other, the other,
0: Yeah. It's a shame. The other day, I went somewhere and I bought an item and I said, look, I'd really like to look at this outside of the package. Uh, is it possible be- that I can open this up before I buy it? And he goes, boy, I don't know. I said, well, let's, let's think about this. You have a very easy exchange or, or return policy. If I buy it and leave the store, open it up, and I don't like it, I get to bring it back. He goes, yep, you do. And I said, so why don't we look at it right now before I buy it, just to make sure. He goes, Seems like a reasonable request to me. Let me go check with my manager. <laughs> and he did. That's now that's the opposite of the one that they have to do this. say no, he's gotta go get approval. The manager came over, was so nice, and he's then I saw him pull the guy aside and he said, You don't have to ask me for things like this. Just take care of it. And it was a great learning opportunity. And it was done with such uh, coaching and, and almost eloquence when the manager supported this guy and said, Here's how you do this right for the next time and and the guy felt great. And, you know, we, you know, everybody, you know of course, I ended up, the, the part was perfect. I bought it, and uh, I'm the happiest guy. As a matter of fact, I wrote a blog about it. I even took the guy's picture and I posted it. So he's happy, too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, um, now let's go online for a minute. Um, sure. Hopefully for a couple of minutes. Um, there is a wide dispa- um, uh, disparity um uh I have credit cards like everybody else does, and there are some credit card companies where you call up and the people are very, very helpful, and there are others um, that, where uh, um, they're, they're they're less than helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- uh, what do you recommend to people who, um, particularly small businesses with small staffs, uh, and they have call-ins? What do you what do you say to them? About uh, uh, telephone uh, customer service. Sure. So let's,
0: let's just make it real clear that when anybody is hired to work for my company, what we try to teach companies to tell their employees and their colleagues and their associates, whatever they call their employees, is to take the Disney philosophy. And the Disney philosophy is this. There's, everybody has three jobs to do, no matter what job they're hired to do. That's their first job. It's the responsibility that they were hired for. Number two, their second job is to take care of the guest, their customer. And number three is to keep the park clean (laughs) or keep the property clean so they see a piece of paper they're supposed to pick it up. But think about that. That's everybody's job. So, uh, you know, another concept that I love out there is that it may not be your problem, uh, or it may not be your fault, but it is your problem when a customer calls you. So if a customer calls our office, and says, you know, like our online systems, we have a great online learning tool called the Customer Focus. And, and once in a while, uh, it's a computer, you know, online program, you're going to run into something. It's typically the Internet signal is as strong as it needs to be. But they call our office. No matter who they talk to, that person owns the problem, even if it has to be solved by somebody else. we That's the ownership. Now, you mentioned credit card companies. Um, let's take a test or a case study and look at American Express, who, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, was probably not the greatest company out there recognized for their customer service. Jim Bush, the senior vice president of customer service worldwide, took it over, and he said, here's our goal. They would do, uh, they started out where they would do 75% technical training on understanding the product knowledge of the American Express benefits uh, for the merchant Uh, They knew how to get the people through the different screens and the call center on their computers, and they would spend 25% on the people skills, which is a huge number. 25% of their training was dedicated to taking care of that customer and building that relationship. And Jim Bush said it's not enough. He says we can teach anybody to go through screens and teach them about technical product knowledge. We need to focus on that relationship. They currently spend 70 to 75% of their efforts in teaching people customer service skills, and I think that's a pretty cool concept. The other thing they do really well, because this goes back to one of your earlier questions, is when they hire people, they don't necessarily care about call center or customer support center experience. They care about your background. They like to hire people that work in a hotel or a restaurant who understand the hospitality mentality.
1: Funny you should mention that. Uh, I, I have a platinum card And uh, Platinum Service at America Express, whenever you call up, no matter what the problem, they solve it right then and there. Oh, that's the goal. uh,
0: Yes, And that's going to happen. Yeah, that'll happen 95% of the time. Once in a while, you run into the problem. And that's an important thing to to mention. You know, I use Ace Hardware through the book. Uh, I just mentioned American Express. is a great, you know, company. You are going to have problems with all of the best companies. Look at Zappos.com, Ritz Carlton, Four Seasons, Amazon. No matter how great they are, there will be some incident. It may just be a bump in the road. It may be somebody having a bad day. But these companies have systems in place to recover. So nobody's perfect. Perfection is not reality. It's a goal. But on the way to perfection, as Vince Lombardi says, excellence can be achieved. And so I think that, that, you know, the companies, there's nobody that's flawless, but you can learn from the people that are almost perfect, and then when they make a mistake, watch how they recover.
1: Well, how do you recover from a mistake? Let's say, um, um, well, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, An office supply company, I went into their uh, brick uh, location and and got horrible, horrible service and went and... uh, this, this company, and I'll, I'll say it because it's Staples. Uh, I called the office of the president, and they have now the office of the president uh, to take care of matters like that. And they really went went uh, overboard to try to fix the problem, and right. succeeded with me. But, yeah, and here's um,
0: why they succeeded. They have a system in place to take care of those once in a while issues that will come up because again you got bad service you weren't happy and it's probably not typical so they said this is important enough that we want we will have uh somebody in our office at a high level so if it's really really bad we can take care of things and that's exactly what they did they took care of it now here's what they are really supposed to do and it doesn't matter if it's staples office depot Ace hardware any of them when there's a problem the goal is to do more than fix the problem. And that doesn't mean giving something away for free. It means doing something at a level that's strong enough that will not only regain the customer's support, but also will regain their confidence to want to do business with them again. So there's three simple ideas that we always tell our clients to do whenever there's a problem, assuming that they're not a problem-laden organization. Number one, fix what needs to be fixed. If you aren't happy with what it is that you bought and they will exchange it, return it, whatever. Number two, do it with the right attitude. And number three, do it with a sense of urgency. Do it fast. And if you put those three things together, there's a pretty good chance that your customer is going to say, I love this company. I can count on them even when things don't go right. And you can have a confidence that's even higher than if the problem had never taken place before.
1: Would you mind repeating those three just summary, because I think that's so important.
0: Sure. Number one, fix what needs to be fixed. Number two, do it with the right attitude. And number three, do it with urgency. Do it fast.
1: Oh, and the, and the name of your book, so we get it out there again?
0: Sure. It's Amaze Every Customer Every Time, 52 Tools to Create the Most Amazing Customer Service on the Planet. And uh, you can learn more about it. Just go to amazeeverycustomer.com.
1: Well, let me ask you, uh, uh, again, uh, it's a loaded question, so uh, I'll understand if you don't. I noticed that a lot of companies are bringing back from overseas their customer service, their online customer service. Is that a trend you're seeing?
0: Well, actually, I, I think sometimes it is. There are companies that have had bad luck with the companies they've hired overseas, um, and they are bringing some of it back into the U.S. or at least into North America. However, the best of these call support centers, if you go to a good one that's international in nature, you might be talking to somebody in the Philippines and India and Singapore, but guess what? Uh, you won't know it because they're trained well. It's not about the accent anymore. They recognize uh, customers do not want to call and talk to somebody regardless of the accent and where they're from. I mean, you can call somebody. I just talked to somebody in Microsoft yesterday, a great company, got some great customer support from them. And uh, that person lives in Florida, works in Florida, and she has a very strong, uh, I'm not sure if it's Hispanic or Cuban, but she has a very strong accent. I could understand her perfectly fine, but there was still the accent. Accents don't bother us. It's not being able to understand what the person's saying that does. So the best call center, and I work with some international call centers, they are people you wouldn't have any idea they're you're calling somebody over, overseas. And I think that's okay. That makes sense.
1: Well, uh, I'm going to admit a personal bias. I always prefer to talk to somebody who's in the United States. It seems that, that they have more flexibility than um, people uh, overseas. They seem to be uh, reading from a manual rather than uh, talking to me. Uh, well, you know, and
0: I, I think that that has nothing to do, the reading from the manual has nothing to do with whether they're from the U.S. or from overseas. I think it's the way they're properly trained. You know, my experience yesterday with Microsoft, I asked certain questions, and she said, hold on, let me look that up. And at first I thought, am I dealing with a rookie? And as we got to talking, I realized I was dealing with uh, uh, somebody that had been there a long time and was – actually making sure that she gave me the exact information that I needed to have. And I was totally cool. Uh, She'd been there, I think, six years, she told me, in customer support. And, uh, you know, I felt I was dealing with a pretty seasoned professional, but I asked her a question. She said, hold on. (laughs) So, you know, that doesn't mean she's reading from a manual. Um, Anyway, so that's, you know, I know you've got your bias based on your past experiences, which is a shame uh, because that's what bias is based on typically. Is past experience at least it should be uh not on hearsay, but if uh you get with the right company, uh, you'd be surprised where where you're calling and who you're talking to
1: well um uh, let's let's sum up uh, can you give us what what you think are the two or three key elements to good customer service
0: sure uh well so just two or three, but there were fifty two that oh. I put in the book. I'm just kidding.
1: I I understand that. I know.
0: Uh, But I think uh, the first is to recognize recognize that every interaction that your customer has with you, your people, however remote, is an opportunity to form an impression. That's what Jan Carlson in his book, Moments of Truth, referred to as the moment of truth in business. Again, any time a customer comes into contact with any aspect of your business, they form an impression. Is it good or is it bad? In other words, is it a moment of magic, which is what I like to call it, or is it a moment of misery? And that moment of magic is just a little bit better than average. So that's point number one. Point number two is to recognize, okay, and this is real important, that above average is the key, but not just once in a while, all the time. You do not have to be over the top, wow, blow me away, give me the most incredible service in the world. You can't do that every time. But if you are consistently better than average, even just a little bit better than average all of the time, people will walk away and go, wow, I love doing business with them. You'll create confidence, which creates loyalty. And the third point I guess I'd like to make is this, that customer service is not a department. We referenced this earlier in our conversation. It's a philosophy to be embraced by every single person in the organization. So if in a small business somebody gets called and they're not officially in the customer support role, it doesn't matter. It's all about supporting the customer no matter what. It's a philosophy. You have internal customers that you need to treat just as well, if not better, than your external customers because what's happening on the inside of that company is going to be felt by that customer.
1: If if people wanted to contact you, how would they do it?
0: Well, my name's Chef Hyken, and just go to hyken.com, H-Y-K-E-N.com, You'll find all kinds of information. Uh, they can contact me uh, right through the website, be able to email me. My phone number is there. Plus, we have about 250 articles that I've written that uh, you can download, you can share with your friends, your colleagues, print them out. We want you to do that as long as you use it for your own <laughs> own company and not for commercial purposes. We are happy to have you make copies for everyone. Uh,
1: Chef, can you stay on a couple of more minutes? Absolutely. I know you've got a plan to catch uh, do, let, me, uh, let me let uh, me go to another uh, topic uh, when a small business um decides uh to embrace a uh, philosophy what are the what are the steps a uh, small business owners should uh, start um, with to to uh develop uh, superior uh customer service
0: well, I, I guess uh, I have a simple, almost a five-step approach, and I kind of touched on some of this, but number one is to hire right. It's so important that you get the right personality, not just for customer service, but for your culture as well. So that's number one. Number two, uh, lots of training. Train, train, train. The soft and the you know, hard skills that they need. But if it's customer service, make sure you're constantly training. The best companies in the world train ongoing. If you look at a restaurant, uh, a good restaurant, right before they open in the evening, you may see uh, the manager having what he calls his pre-opening meeting, and that's an every night occurrence. times. They talk about what specials they have, and they talk about you know the great service they deliver and what he or she may have seen the night before that could be worked on and improved on. So training super important. Number three. Recognize success. So go over to somebody that's doing a good job and pat them on the back and recognize them and make them feel good and reinforce it. Number three, or number four, publicly recognize a, as the team. So if, if the company's doing well, let everybody know it and celebrate that success as a team because that builds camaraderie and it also creates a fulfilling, uh, culture. And then, uh, finally, the fifth one is, is what I refer to as the employee golden rule. And, again, I mentioned this earlier, treat your employees the way you want your customers treated, maybe even better. And when you do that, you create that internal culture that will help drive that customer service outside of the company.
1: Well, let's talk about training for one minute. Um, uh, In surveys we've done over the years, um, uh, small businesses uh, uh, seem to view training as time away from selling. Um, or from work and that, um, they, they seem to have a, um, uh, well, it's an old, oh, by the way, for, the, for a lot of small businesses. It's unfortunate, but, uh, in focus groups we've run across, we've done and run, we, we seem to, um, uh, surface that a lot. But you, you keep coming back to training. Training you feel is very important, and uh, I'd like you to address that a little bit.
0: Well, sure. Basically, what you're saying is that the companies aren't budgeting properly for training, and it's not. It's not just let's allocate dollars. Let's allocate time. And sometimes what that means is if you decide you want to give somebody uh, 40 hours of training a year on customer service, say you know almost once a week or so for 40 weeks, or maybe a half day once every. You know, so, so often. If you decide to do that, you've got to recognize you're taking somebody out of their workforce for a full week, you know, 40 hours. So when you budget, don't just budget the time, budget the people as well. That means that you may have uh, one extra employee that you didn't plan on so that you can, you know, cover the times when people are gone. And that's just the way it is. It's all part of making it uh, important enough to budget dollars and people.
1: Uh, I think that's so important, and uh, 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 we talk with small business uh, owners every day, and uh, we just hear that, yes, we'd like to, but we just can't afford to. And Mm -hmm. my answer back is you can't afford not to.
0: Right, right. And at the end of the day, if you think about your investment in customer service, just like any other investment you make in your company, you're looking for a return on that investment. And there should be a return. It should, at the end of the day, it shouldn't really cost you. It should pay for you to do customer service. You know, there is a capital expense with equipment. There is a capital expense, or, or there is an expense in developing your people. And I think that may be even more important than than some of the capital expenditures the companies have.
1: Um, uh, uh, Chef, this has really been illuminating, and uh, uh, I really appreciate the time you've, you've taken. Uh, uh, traveler to me, is always a hassle, and uh, uh, we're adding <laughs> to it. I know.
0: Sometimes it is. Yeah.
1: No, you're not adding to it. It is my pleasure
0: to have been on your show. It really is, and I'm happy to come back anytime you want. Uh, uh,
1: again, if, uh, the name of your book and how they can reach you?
0: Sure. The book is Amaze Every Customer Every Time, and just go to amazeeverycustomer.com, and if you want to get directly to me, Uh, Go to uh, hyken.com, H-Y-K-E-N.com, and there I will be waiting for you.
1: Well, I read your book, and um, uh, I have to say one other thing. You're the only other person I've uh, ever spoken to that's read Carlson's book.
0: (laughs) Well, thanks. That was the first one. That was the one that I think turned it around for me, and actually the first time I knew about it was in an article that was written in a magazine.
1: Well, I think that's the same way I saw it. Uh, that book is, what, 20, 25 years old?
0: Well, I believe it was written in 1986. Uh, I think I yeah. read the article in around 1984.
1: Uh, yeah, that's about book. the time that, that I read it. Um, it's a simple, uh, thin
0: little book. Uh, you know, Go to the major bookstore or just go online to Amazon.com or BNN.com and and uh, you'll be able to find it. And it's such a simplistic idea, just managing interaction that you have with your Customers, guests, passengers, or whatever your company or business does.
1: Well, again, thank you for being with us, and uh, you are definitely going to be invited back.
0: Well, thank you, sir. look forward to it. And uh, as I always like to say, just be amazing.
1: <laughs> On that note, let's say goodbye, and we'll see you soon.
0: All right. Thank you, sir.
1: This is Don Mazzella. I am Editorial Director of Small Business Digest. Uh, You're listening to Small Business Digest Radio here on Blog Talk Radio. Um, Our next guest will be with us in just a few moments. In the meantime, uh, here is a word from one of our sponsors.
2: Want to know more about health savings accounts for your company or yourself? Go to 2hsa.com and get a free employer's primer. Health savings accounts are a cost-effective way of offering health care benefits to your employees and yourself. HSAs build retirement funds for your employees, improve morale, and reduce your health care benefit costs. For a free employer guide to HSAs, go to 2hsa.com. That's 2hsa.com.
1: We're back live here. Uh, While we're waiting for our next guest, I'll pass on to you some of the information that's been coming across my desk in the last couple of days. First one, obviously, everybody's talking about is Obamacare. Uh, O-Day came, and uh, it was uh, in many ways a non-event. People are rushing to... uh, 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 get uh, health care insurance and discovering that the the systems uh, were not quite in uh, in place. Uh, First day, uh, they planned for 50,000 people, and they got 250,000. It's a glitch, but it should um, work itself out. Uh, The other interesting statistic that came out uh, Uh, just this morning was from the National Federation of Independent Businesses, which indicated that uh, 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 small business uh, leaders were uh, a little bit more pessimistic about the outcome. We heard Pete talk about uh, optimism, Pete Van Sohn. The the jury is still out. Clearly, with the uh, uh, shutdown, uh, uh, government shutdown and the uh, paralysis in uh, uh, Washington we're all suffering from um, uncertainty but uh, it, it should work itself out while while we're still waiting uh, I have one more message to deliver
2: just how dangerous is social networking use of websites like Facebook, Twitter and YouTube are all the rage But what are the downsides of this new technology? The incidents of bullying, stalking, harassment, and inappropriate content are increasing. Just how dangerous is it? What can you do to protect your child and yourself from it? Go to protectivecountermeasures.com for a free hour-long video on the dangers of social networking. That's protectivecountermeasures.com for your free hour-long video.
1: We're back live here, waiting for our next guest to appear. Uh, in the meantime, uh, if you have any uh, topics or a guest you, you would like to hear on this program, it, uh, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at uh, we, We'll continue now talking about current events while we wait for our next guest. Uh, he should be with us momentarily. Uh, what we're finding in our research, we just con- uh, conducted a, a focus group of small business leaders. And by the way, if you'd like to be a m- uh, member of our f- focus group or uh, have ideas that you want to uh, uh, talk with us about, it's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. Uh here here at blog talk radio uh we we talk about a variety of subjects but in these focus groups uh we concentrate on trying to find out just how and why small business leaders uh are, are operating in today's world it is clearly an uncertain world we're living in and it's one that we uh, uh, hope will at some point uh, straighten itself out um uh, our guest next week will talk about finance. We'll be talking about, uh, which is uh, still a, a, the number one concern. Finding financing in today's world uh, has uh, turned out to be a very difficult uh, thing, and it's not getting easier. Uh, 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 community banks and, and uh, credit unions, uh, for for the first two years of the downturn, uh, really uh, rushed in and provided tremendous help to small business. But because of the new uh, uh, legal requirements, the, they've tapered off in their lending. That That's left uh, a um, big void uh, for a lot of small businesses. They say that the toughest uh, money to raise is anything under $500,000, on uh, a $25,000 loan up to uh 500,000 is extremely difficult um, on on our website uh smallbusinessdigest.net uh there's a uh, very interesting story on how to better uh, manage uh the process of obtaining a loan uh, it's at smallbusinessdigest.net we're uh, still waiting for our guest. Uh, he he should be here momentarily. So if you will bear with us, uh, we'll hear another word f- from our sponsor.
2: Want to know more about health savings accounts for your company or yourself? Go to 2hsa.com and get a free employer's primer. Health savings accounts are a cost-effective way of offering health care benefits to your employees and yourself. HSAs build retirement funds for your employees, improve morale, and reduce your health care benefit costs. For a free employer guide to HSAs, go to 2hsa.com. That's 2hsa.com.
1: Our next guest has just joined us. And uh, welcome. Todd, are you there? Todd, are you there?
3: Yes, I am.
1: How are you, Todd? Uh, Our next guest is Todd Green. Uh, We invited him on this program because uh, he had a personal problem and he turned it into a product. Uh, Welcome to the show. But before we go further, uh, Todd, uh, we always ask our guests to talk about, to tell us a little bit about themselves.
3: Okay. Before I talk about the product, you're saying me Absolutely. and my personal journey? hmm I grew up in Maine. So not a, even though I live in Los Angeles now, I'm not from a, a big city. I'm actually from Augusta, Maine, uh, and went to Bowdoin College, which is a small liberal arts college in Maine. Uh, worked there. So I graduated, I am 46. So graduated in 85, uh, ended up working for the college for a couple of years, then moved to Philadelphia, and I worked at Swarthmore College for a couple of years, and then that started my trek out west.
1: Well, you, you've gone about as far from Augusta, Maine as you can get and still be in the United States. Pretty much,
3: I my I, I, Father lives in Florida, and I've lived in Maine, Philadelphia, Seattle, and L.A. So, definitely not going to be landlocked, and I prefer, I guess, the corners of our country.
1: <laughs> I can see that. Um, yeah. The, we we invited you on the program because what struck me is you had a you had you, you want you had a a problem. And you solved it, and you turned it into a product that goes to seven thousand stores, and and we we want to talk about that journey.
3: Okay, well it's funny because it definitely, in terms of what I created, which is the Headblade, the Headblade Company, um, it was a personal journey, and as with a lot of inventions, this one came out of necessity. So when I, you know, going back to Philadelphia was a good jumping point because I was working at Swarthmore College in Philadelphia. I was in my early 20s, and like a lot of guys, I was losing my hair. So at the time, you know, I used to go get my hair cut, and I remember my beautician who actually refused to cut my hair because I used to like to get it shorter and shorter, and she was worried because I was so thin on the top that the more she cut, the more you could see the top of my head. So she kind of politely uh, declined that extra income that I could give her every few weeks um, because she wanted me to grow my hair out. And when I moved to Seattle, um, it's funny because you know I'm, I'm white, I was in my mid-20s, um, I have ears, my ears stick out. And my brother used to joke that I look like a car with its doors open and when I moved to Seattle, I actually shaved my head because I thought, all right, I'm moving from Philadelphia to Seattle. Nobody in Seattle will even know I ever had hair. So it's a good time for me to to shave my head because that's what I decided to do. It's instead of Rogaine, transplants, and toupees, which back in the 80s was really the mentality. You know, if you stay up really late, you watch television, it's that you're too fat, You're too bald, or you can't clean your house fast enough, you know, because all the infomercials are just prying on your insecurities. So I was in my 20s, and I decided, you know what, I'm just going to shave my head. And what a great time to shave than when I go from Philadelphia to Seattle, because in Seattle, people can't say, oh, you look better with hair, right, because they didn't know I ever, ever had hair. So I shaved my head, and I remember I was in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, I was in this bar and I was talking to this guy and I shaved my head and I told him what my brother used to say, that I look like a car with its doors open because my ears stick out so much. And that was pretty much my big insecurity of shaving my head was I have these huge ears that I can't hide. And the guy looked at me and he said, oh, you don't look like a car with its doors open. And I said, oh my gosh, thank you because I'm so insecure about that. And he said, no, you look like a convertible with its doors open. (laughs) So uh, I moved to Seattle, and uh, then I really just kind of adopted the shaved head look. And I've had that since the early 90s. Uh, and that's pretty much how the idea of Head started, was getting that easier way to shave your head. And I can talk about the difficulties with that, but I don't want to just keep going on. So I, I will wait for your lead end, Don.
1: Okay, so now what's your product?
3: The product is a head blade. So in the 90s, when I was shaving my head, uh, not a lot of guys were shaving. It wasn't very popular. Um, And if you shaved your head with a conventional razor, it's the idea. There's this this, uh, author, clinical psychologist, Oliver Sacks, who did the movie Awakening. Mm -hmm. And I used to read his books. And he had a book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Uh, where it would talk about uh, just certain difficulties. And w- one of the things or terms that I, I read was proprioception, which is the idea of knowing where your extremities are in space. And when I was in college, I probably I had problems with my feet. I had heel spurs. And I had to have this operation. And part of the difficulty of the operation was if they made the wrong decision and your heels lose feeling. You're just going to be clomping on the ground because you do not know when your heels hit the ground. And with proprioception and shaving, if you're using a regular handle razor, your hand is out in space and it's not touching your head. And when we shave, like you shave your face, correct? Correct. Or your legs. Okay, so you shave your face. And you probably use your dominant hand to shave with. You're looking in the mirror, you're using your dominant hand. If you're going to throw a baseball, you'd use your dominant hand. If you get, need to get change out of your pockets, you're going to use whichever hand is closer. If you're going to clean your ears, you're going to use whichever hand is closer. So the idea of HeadBlade was the idea of it's so much easier to shave if you can shave by feel, because when you're using a conventional razor, you can shave with your dominant hand the places that you can see, which would for me be the right part of my head and maybe that side, but when I have to shave the back or the left side of my head, it becomes, not contortionist, but it's very difficult, and if I'm shaving the back of my head, you might need two mirrors, and if you're looking at two mirrors, everything is backwards. So really, the whole idea of HeadBlade started with, if I could just shave my head by rubbing or by
1: feel. So, So you created the product.
3: Yeah, and that was when I moved from Seattle to L.A. in 97, because in Seattle I worked for software companies, I was an artist, and then I worked for Starwave, which was a Polly company that did ESPN.com, ABC.com, OutsideOnline.com, when I moved to L.A., I worked for Disney Imagineering, and then I worked for GeoCities. So in my whole, I think a bit like John Irving, Uh, he did a book called The Prayer for Owen and. You do so many things in your life that if you can learn from every aspect, you know, like being a jack of all trades, eventually at one point something may come up in your life that you're like, hey, I can stand for that or I can use all these things that I've done in my past to put them into one project. So with the HeadBlade, you know, I was an art major at Bowdoin. I had done fundraising uh, at Bowdoin and Swarthmore for alumni. Uh, I was an editor online. Uh, I did customer support and operations for uh, ESPN's fantasy games. So I had all these, like, different experiences that when I came up with the HeadBlade, it was really, you know, put-up-or-shut-up time for me.
1: Okay. So now you have the idea. You have it. Uh, how did you go about uh, what I what I thought was interesting? You now have it in 7,000 stores. How did you go about it and accomplish that feat?
3: Okay. I think think we're in over 12,000 stores because if you look at we're in Walgreens, we're in Rite Aid, we're in Publix, we're in APIS, but you have to start small. It definitely is the walk before you run. And, you know, I've definitely – my father owned a wholesale uh, hardware store in Maine, and I definitely have a great work ethic. Uh, and I have the nobody's going to care more than you do. So when I came up with the head blade, I realized I had to prove the concept worked. I didn't have a lot of money, so I made my own models and my own prototypes. And then I realized I have to talk to a lawyer. You know, there's all these basic steps that you have to take to make sure that your idea has value. That if it does have value, you're going to try to protect that value. Um, and I definitely was walking around guarding this thing like like it was like everybody in the world wanted to steal it. I mean, every inventor feels that way. It's like you can't even tell you can't even tell your lawyer you're so worried that somebody's going to steal it and put it on the shelves before you even get off the ground with it. Uh, but I I made my own prototypes and I got to a point where I applied for a patent. Uh, Then I I stupidly thought, hey, I'm just going to write Gillette and Schick and license the idea and then just cash checks. Uh, Gillette never wrote me back. And I wrote them and I said, hey, I've invented the world's best, you know, head-shaving razor, call me or write me. I never heard from them. But then when I started selling Headblade, uh, I had already got a form rejection letter from Schick. And then eight months later when I started selling it online, uh, both Gillette and Schick... Uh, bought individual units, which I think they bought just because they a wanted to see what Headblade was, and two they wanted to see if they were going to sue me.
1: And what happened?
3: Oh, nothing. I called them up. <laughs> it was funny because the the person from Schick that sent me uh, a check for the fifteen dollars for the Headblade, and this is when you know I made the original Headblades in the U.S. I was living in a rent-controlled apartment in Santa Monica, and I had started my business out of my apartment, and I was selling it online, the HeadBlades. And my website was just, you go to the website, and our only product is a HeadBlade. I get a check from Chick in the mail for $15, and I actually wrote them, I think I wrote them or called them, because they didn't send me enough money for shipping and handling. But for some and reason, I thought, okay, I'm just going to call up Schick and tell them, in this case, we'll forego the shipping and handling. We'll just send them the head blade. Uh, because I thought, oh, yeah, they're just getting a head blade because they want to see if they want to buy me. Uh, but nothing happened in terms of, you know, any patents or any infringements. Because early on, uh, you know, we we talk about the razor wars with Gillette, you know, the Mach 3, and then Schick got bought by Energizer, and they came out with the Quattro, and now, you know, it's gone up to the Pro Glide, the Fusion, the Hydro 5, you know, the Razor Wars. And when I came out with HeadBlade, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't compromising my legal position. So essentially, I designed the HeadBlade to fit the older type Gillette or Chic blades using a third-party pivot. So there was nothing about HeadBlade that infringed anything on those two companies.
1: So, okay, you now have a product, you're now online. How did you move to the next step, which got you uh, uh, distribution?
3: Well, one of the key things um, for me, because it was such a novel idea, and I think of uh, the bell curve. You know, anybody wants to look at a HeadBlade, you can just go to the website headblade.com, because it's hard to envision, but it looks like a little matchbox car. Fits on your finger and you drive it like a car. So the blade will automatically um, pivot. So it does look and it is about the same size as a matchbox car. Uh, I started selling HeadBlade online and then I really just sent it out to the press. And it was interesting because this is 1999 or 2000 when I first created the website. And I wasn't sold in stores, and a lot of the magazines did not want to write about a web-based company. So I actually had to walk down the street to Fred Siegel, which is a, a small, cool boutique retailer in Los Angeles, and get them to sell Headblades. Because once I got a land retail store to sell my item, the magazines were much more, oh, okay, we'll, we'll write about Headblade, and we'll just say go to Fred Siegel which was great for me because it is a a good boutique store, Uh, but that really kind of put us on the map where the free press was amazing, and then we started to win awards. And the biggest one came that first year where Time Magazine called it one of the top ten designs in the world, which gave us a huge amount of legitimacy. You know, one of the things for any small uh, inventor or entrepreneur is trying to get legitimacy because if you create an item you put it on the market, the first thing people are going to ask you is, it's so great, why haven't I seen it on TV? Why haven't I seen it in magazines? And that's just the way people are conditioned.
1: That's very true. How did you sell Fred Siegel? Uh, I just walked in.
3: So I was very fortunate that, you know, uh, I really do think of the bell curve, where I was a white guy from Maine, I was losing my hair, I shaved my head, and I thought, there have to be a lot more guys my age that aren't going to buy into Rogaine, transplants, or toupees. And the only other option is shaving. And shaving is so much easier, so much cheaper, and here I've created the Better Mousetrap. So that was how I kind of sold it into Fred Siegel, and then since they have a high celebrity clientele, um, a few famous people like actually Howie Mandel bought his at Fred Siegel. John Sally, the basketball player, bought his there. And that really also legitimized the product um, but gave it a little more cachet as well.
1: Um, what advice would you give a small business? Uh, our small business audience in in uh developing a product, what did you learn that you'd like to pass on to them?
3: Well, there's a couple things, because one, you know, uh, there's, there's a great short story by Paulo Coelho, who wrote The Alchemist, I'm probably chopping his name off, I'm sorry, but it's definitely his little short parable about the three guys who are Working in the quarry in the hot summer sun, you know they're working in a rock foundation where they're just, you know, three guys. They all have the axe and the pick. And somebody walks up to the first guy and says, "What are you doing?" The guy looks up at him and says, "I'm breaking rocks." The guy says, "Okay." You know, he goes to the second guy he's doing the exact same thing. He said, "Hey, what are you doing?" And the guy had the axe and the pick, and he looks up and he says, "I'm working." You know, I come in in the morning. They tell me what to do. I kind of clock in, clock out when I go home. That's my life. And they said the third guy who had the pick and the axe, who's out in the same quarry, same hot summer sun, and this guy's just really going at it, really sweaty, really just going like demons, just really working, really working. And he said, what are you doing? And the guy looked up and he says, I'm building a cathedral. So for me, in all my past experiences, with my jobs, I've always tried to make them more than what they they were because I look at myself as an artist. And when I came up with the idea of Headblade, that's my cathedral, you know. So you kind of have to always keep that vision in mind. And like one of my professors at Bowdoin said, when, I, when we were painting, he said, you know, when you're painting something and people are critiquing it, the problem is they don't know what what your vision is. They're only seeing what's on the paper now. And until you see the the fulfillment of that vision, nobody's going to under, fully understand what you're doing, you know. And I look to the guy with the flying car you know he's crazy the minute he has that flying car and it's working everybody loves it he's brilliant so during your journey of from conception to invention to getting it to market you're that guy with a flying car in the garage that everybody thinks is crazy and you really have to be conditioned and understand that people just don't know what you're really trying to do and you have to hold that vision that would be one thing The other thing is, there's been a lot of setbacks when I first started out. And, you know, first day that I started selling HeadBlade, I actually rented a booth in Venice Beach. Have you ever been out to Venice Beach in California? No,
1: but go ahead.
3: It's in a lot of movies, and it's, you know, all these vendors, and you hang out on the beach, and I thought, well, this would be a great place to sell HeadBlade. So I had my friends help me pack it the first time, I don't know, 500 head blades. So I rented a booth for the day. I had the girl on the roller skates. It was a hot summer day, kind of like the whole cathedral thing. And out of the 500 head blades, I had like five or six people helping me. We sold 10. And I was so depressed. At the end of that day, I said to my ex-wife, who was my wife at the time, but now fortunately it's my ex-wife, I said to her, I can't believe... We made 500 head blades and we only sold 10. You know, I, I spent $80,000 of my money and, you know, my investor money, which was my father and a couple friends. And I've made 500 head blades and I've only sold 10. This is a failure. She said, no, you got to look at it like this. She said, how many did you sell? I said, well, I sold seven. She said, well, look at that. You sold more than everybody else combined. I said, well, what am I going to do with that? I'm employee of the month. You know, I'm just going to go back to my apartment where I have no employees, and I have this one room where I have everything headblade. Or I'm going to put a picture of myself up on the wall, employee of the month. Essentially, that's what it is. It's you, and it's you, and you have to understand that. If you start a business, you have that vision, you, like solitary confinement, you have to understand that you have to see it through.
1: That's damn good advice.
3: Yeah, oh, thank
1: you. Thank you.
3: Worked for me. <laughs>
1: uh, obviously. Um, yeah. But 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 now, how did you got into Fred Siegel's? Now, how did you move from there into uh, these other stores?
3: Oh, so you mean, and I just skipped that whole question?
1: Um, because of the press that
3: we got, I had uh, pretty much uh, some distributors and some manufacturers reps call me up, say, "Hey, I saw your product." I think that would be great for retail. You know, if, if you're and So that's essentially how we got into some of the small stores, and our first major retailer was Rite Aid. And then we had Walgreens. But again, when you get to that level, it's not like you get to, okay, Rite, Rite Aid or Walgreens, once you're in, now you're on cruise control. Because that's when your company has to make some really critical decisions, and you have to either get some more investment money You know, because people do see me on television now and they write me and they ask me for advice once in a while. And they kind of think that, oh, if I could just get into the major retailers. But you got to understand with the major retailers, your margins go way down. But you're paying the shipping. You're paying the mad accrual. You're paying your reps. And then some of the major retailers, they'll want to do like a guaranteed sale or consignment for that first year. So it's not like, hey, they put in an order and they just give you a check and shake your hand. It's you're going to have to carry that all the way through maybe another year before you start making money or seeing that uh, negative become a positive.
1: So you, you, you've you just hit on the major problem that many small businesses have. Sometimes su- success brings a lot more problems Uh, than one might imagine. You have to be prepared for them. Would that be accurate?
3: Yeah, growth costs money. You know, and you get to certain stages that you have to make critical decisions. Hey, do I want to be an Internet company? Do I want to be a wholesaler? Do I want to sell in mid-range stores? You know, everybody talks about getting the Walmart account, but then when you really do get those accounts, then people say, you don't want all your business in one retailer because... If they knock you down or if they, you know, uh, again, I'll go back to my Bowdoin experience because I really think Bowdoin was a great place for me to grow up and understand a lot of different things. And I had a professor that said, if you owe the bank a million dollars, you're in trouble. If you owe the bank a hundred million dollars, the bank is in trouble. So when you get to those points where your business is growing, you have to understand, hey, you might have to... Borrow some money, and I have to figure out when I can pay it back. You know, because it does cost money to grow. So if you're working with, let's say, one retailer, maybe it's a Walgreens or Rite Aid or a mid-range. If they, if they account for fifty percent of your sales, they know they have you buy, you know, insert whatever word here, yeah, right? Because they can come back to you and say, your pricing needs to be cheaper. You need to give us some more money. You need to do this, this, and this, and your hands are tied. So you really have to look at what percentage is online, what percentage is small retail, what percentage is large retail, et cetera, and make sure that you don't put all your eggs in one basket um, other than the web. you know, If you want to just remain a web company, that's fine. But uh,
1: the real growth is... Uh of putting it into stores, a product like yours.
3: Yeah, for us to be a legitimate um, company with a brand, it makes a lot of sense if we're up next to on the shelf. And I'm not saying we compete with, because we're still a niche brand. But if we're up on the shelves with Schick, Gillette, and Bic, then boom, Headblade, and that's where we are in, in these retailers, that says a lot about us as a company. And in consumers' minds, where it goes back to that day in Venice when I first started selling it and everybody said, hey, you're so great, why haven't I seen it in stores or why haven't I seen it on TV or why haven't I seen it in magazines? Now we have that built-in legitimacy. And we also get a lot of attrition because guys go to shop for their razors in those stores and they'll just happen upon Headblade. And one of the things that we look at is every product we place in retail is a small ad. It's an ad for HeadBlade. So we have a QR code on the front of our package. So if you want to hold up your smartphone, you'll see a video of the HeadBlade in action. Uh, You see the logo. You see the website. And so they work hand-in-hand because we get a lot of people that go to our website, use our store locator to find the retailers where we sell, and then we have people that go to the retail, see the HeadBlade, maybe buy the HeadBlade there, and then go to our website and see that we sell 50 other items. So they help each other.
1: Um, uh, uh, Todd, this has been really, really interesting. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, and I want to thank you for coming on the program. And uh, uh, I am going to invite you back. We want to talk some more about it.
3: Well, I appreciate it, Don. I hope I shed some light. Obviously, people can get in touch with me through headblade.com. But, yeah, it's a journey, and it really... It's like a roller coaster, but at the end, it's just a fun ride. Have
1: have a good day, and uh, uh, thankfully I don't need the product yet, but maybe sometime in the future I will. All right. Uh, Thanks, Don. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Take care. That was Todd Green. That was Todd Green, uh, who uh, created and uh, runs HeadBlade. This is Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Donald Mazzella. Uh, If you have any comments, suggestions, we're at uh, info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We look forward to uh, uh, hearing from you and from uh, talking with you again, uh,
2: talking to you again next week. Goodbye.